We are closing down this morning our series on monsters. Someone shared with me the first hour, uh, if I knew what monsters meant in the Latin, I had no idea. It means warning. That's apropos. That, that fits very well. But the monsters we were looking at are monsters that aren't in our head or under our bed, but are in our heart. And there are several. We talked the first week, if you remember, Dracula. He's a monster that hurts people with his mouth. Looks a normal person, but he hurts people with his mouth, so that was gossip. Then we, we looked at Godzilla, the anger issue. That's how uh, destructive. Then we looked at Frankenstein. If you remember Frankenstein, it's a conglomeration of a lot of parts and a lot of People, a lot of Christians have their theology as a conglomeration of lots of different pieces that are really unrelated, but it works for them, so I guess it's okay, but it's dangerous. And the fourth, we talked about the mummy. He's relatively non-involved. He's got his own thing wrapped up in himself. Uh, today, we got a final monster that we're looking at, and let me read, and you'll, you'll understand what it is. In the uh, book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia series, uh, there's a handful of the kids with Aslan uh, have, have commanded them. They are on a ship and they are going through Narnia. They're checking out the isles of the Eastern Sea. And they come across one island. They, they almost didn't make it. Boats all beat up. They're out of provisions. So they're able to get to this island and they're bringing the casks on the island. They're going to refill them with fresh water and get food and fix the boat. Well, one of the guys on the trip, his name is Eustace. And Eustace is useless. He sees all this work going on and says, I don't want any part of that. And so he sneaks off into the mountains and, and he gets disoriented and he comes down the, the wrong side into a, uh, a valley and he sees a cave and this dragon is coming out of the cave. And he, it smokes coming out of his, it's just a horrific dragon. But then he notices this dragon's on his last leg and he just falls over dead. But suddenly it starts storming, and Eustace runs into the dragon's cave without even thinking. But when he, when he gets in there, he realizes what dragons keep, and what do dragons guard? Oh, there are dragons hoard, and so there are ingots, and there are, are goblets, and precious gems, and, and all kinds of coins. And, and, and Eustace comes across this, and it says that Eustace, unlike most boys, had never thought much of treasure, but he saw at once the use it would be in this new world. They don't have any tax here, he said, and you don't have to give treasure to the government. With some of this stuff, I could have quite a decent time. I wonder how much I can carry. That bracelet now, those things in it are probably diamonds. I'll slip it on my wrist. Too big, oh, but not if I push it right up here above my elbow. Then fill my pockets with diamonds. That's easier than gold. I wonder when this infernal rain is going to let up. He got into a less uncomfortable part of the pile where it was mostly coins, and settled down to wait, and Eustace fell asleep. Eustace slept and slept and slept. What woke him was a pain in his arm. The moon was shining in at the mouth of the cave, and the bed of treasures seemed to have grown much more comfortable. In fact, he could hardly feel it at all. He was puzzled by the pain in his arm at first, but presently it occurred to him that the bracelet which he had shoved up above the elbow had become strangely tight. His arm must have swollen while he was asleep. It was his left arm. He moved his right arm in order to feel his left, but stopped before he had moved it an inch and bit his lip in terror. For just in front of him and a little on his right, where the moonlit fell clear on the floor of the cave, he saw a hideous shape moving. And he knew that shape. It was a dragon's claw. It had moved as he moved his hand and became still when he stopped moving his hand. 
Oh, what a fool I've been, thought Eustace. Of course, the brute had a mate, and it's lying beside me. For several minutes, he did not dare to move a muscle. He saw two thin columns of smoke going up before his eyes, black against the moonlight, just as there had been smoke coming from the other dragon's nose before it had died. This was so alarming that he held his breath. The two columns of smoke vanished. When he could hold his breath no longer, he let it out, let it out stealthily. Instantly, two jets of smoke appeared again, but even yet, he had no idea of the truth. Presently, he decided that he would edge very cautiously to his left and try to creep out of the cave. Perhaps the creature was asleep, and anyway, it was his only chance. But, of course, before he edged to the left, he looked to the left, and, oh, horror, there was a dragon's claw on that side, too. He must try to crawl out from between the two dragons. He began extending his right arm, and the dragon's foreleg and claw on his right went through exactly the same motion. Then he thought he would try to his left, and the dragon's limb on that side moved too. Two dragons, one on each side, mimicking whatever he did. His nerve broke, and he simply made a bolt for it. There was such a clatter and rasping and clinking of gold and grinding of stones as he rushed out of the cave that he thought they were both following him. He daren't look back. He rushed to the pool. His idea was to get into the water. But just as he reached the edge of the pool, two things happened. First of all, it came over him like a thunderclap that he had been running on all fours. And why on earth had he been doing that? And secondly, as he bent toward the water, he thought for a second that yet another dragon was staring up at him out of the pool. But in an instant, he realized the truth. The dragon face in the pool was his own reflection. There was no doubt of it. It moved as he moved. It opened and shut its mouth as he opened and shut his. He had turned into a dragon while he was asleep sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart. He had become a dragon himself. Dragon's hordes do that. You know, there's just something kind of like evilish, evilishly enchanting about treasure, isn't there? It's just, it's just something about it. I was in Wegmans the other day, and I got to the checkout, minding my own business, doing everything right, I thought. And so I had all my food up there, not, not a ton, but there were two blocks of cheese. I had two blocks of cheese, but they were kind of stuck together. Well, the gal took them and swiped them over her antichrist machine, we called it when I was in high school, her UPC code thing. Two, two blocks, but swiped it just once and stuck it in the bag. And I thought, she didn't catch the second block. Now what do you do? I just assume, right, that God in his sovereignty thought I needed that extra five bucks or something. You know, it's her fault. I tried. And, you know, so I've got my walk with God and my integrity on one side. And then I've got five bucks on the other side. You know, what do you, what do, you do with this thing? And I'm going, I didn't want to be put at this crossroad. I'm not going to tell you what I did. I'm just going to let you try to guess on your own. That would be, that would be fine. But this kind of stuff, all the time in this world, you're filling out your tax form or you're filling out your FAFSA form for kids' college, you have to do this. And you know when you get to this question, why did they ask this question? Because if you put down what's true, you know what's gonna, what it's going to mean. But they didn't ask, you know, was your mom sick this year? and Did you help her out? They didn't ask that one. And they didn't ask if you've been having some hard times and in the future do you have some rough stuff looking ahead of you. They don't even ask those things. They don't care about that stuff. But you know if you answer correctly what it can do. Oh, oh, oh. There's just something... 
there's an aura about treasure that kind of allures you and it's enchanting and kind of brings you into its trance. Uh, dra- dragon's hordes do this. Uh, and you need to know, we live on a dragon's horde. If you are here in the United States of America, you're more wealthy than 93% of the rest of the world. And so you're there. The average American uh, throws away one ton of trash a year twice as much as a Western European, three times as much as a Japanese. Uh, there are, in the last year in America, 4.9 billion credit card solicitations sent out. That's about 40 a household. More than 50% of Americans hold the balance on their credit card month to month. The average is $15,611. Americans are just credit card debt, $882.6 billion dollars and credit card debt there's the the, the, the lure of of the treasure it's just it just we don't want to be in debt like that do we know i don't find anyone who's in debt up to their eyeballs who says yeah, i like it here no one likes it but it's just something that pulls us into that uh, craig blomberg he wrote in his uh book neither poverty nor riches he said little of what the, the dragon's hoard can do to us. He said, Americans spent annually twice as much on cut flowers as on overseas Protestant ministries, twice as much on women's sheer hosiery, one and one-half times as much on video games, slightly more on the lawn industry, about five times as much on pets, one and a half times as much on skin care, almost one and a half times as much on chewing gum, about three times as much on swimming pools and accessories, approximately seven times as much on sweets, 17 times as much on diets and diet-related products, 27 times as much on sporting activities, and approximately 26 times as much on soft drinks, and a staggering 140 times as much on legalized gambling activities than overseas Protestant ministries. We, we, we think sometimes that this is... It's the world we live in is, is dangerous. They shouldn't be doing Those people ought not to be doing that, right? Those people ought not. But the, the, the first point has to be inside because Jesus told us that the greed is not something that necessarily the world just kind of infuses with us. It's almost like the fire is there and the world's more than happy to pour fuel on it, but the fire is there. First text. Jesus went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. It's not what goes in. But for it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, and arrogance and folly. All these evils come from within and defile a person. We've got the dragon inside us. Now it's... It's difficult because we don't always see the dragon within us. You know, if if people are um, involved in murder or uh, adultery, you kind of know those things. But greed, I don't don't really see that. That's something other people have. We know a bunch of people who are greedy. But our name isn't on that list. We don't see that. Now, now Jesus is going to talk about that just a little bit more in... Luke 12, said someone in the crowd, this is fascinating because Jesus is preaching here. Now, not like this, not, Jesus is preaching uh, truths of, the, of heaven. This is pretty significant. Jesus is preaching, but someone interrupts him. Thank you that y'all didn't do this. Someone interrupts, middle of the sermon, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And he's not even asking Jesus a question. 
A teacher, now notice he's not even saying, Jesus, here's the facts. Would you kind of figure it out and tell me what the right thing to do is? He doesn't want to know that. He wants Jesus to do what he can't do. He wants to leverage all of Jesus' power and Jesus' influence to help him out fiscally. We do the same sort of thing, don't we? We, we yeah, truth, and I, that's right. But Jesus, I need you to show up right here, man. I need you to help me fiscally, to help me so, take care of me financially, to support. I need you to help me feel secure financially, Jesus. Same thing this guy was asking. This guy may have had a, a great case. I, I don't know. I don't know. But what does Jesus answer? Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator between you? In other words, he's saying, this is not in my job description. I came to help you find God and not to help you find riches. That's not what I'm about. And he says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. You know, when I taught three of my children now to drive, I know you parents who've done this. This is where the gray hair comes from, right? It's like, oh. Well, you know, when you're doing that, and all three, they are, they're good drivers, all of them, but in every single case, there was time or times where they would be over there driving, and I'm over, over here, and I'm saying, watch out, watch out, watch out, watch out. You pull this parents, watch out, watch out. You're hanging on the dashboard trying to break yourself. Watch out, watch out. And they're looking at you like you got three heads. You know, hey, come on, I've got this. Chill out. You're too afraid. You don't understand. You don't know. Is there taking the turn at 70 miles an hour? You don't know. It's okay. I can deal with it. But what they don't know is I've got like 40 years of driving experience. And I've been in accidents. And I've seen people who are hurt very bad through accidents. And I know some of the dangers that they might not know yet. Jesus is looking at us with life. And he says, watch out about greed. And sometimes he tells us, we're looking at him like he's got three heads. Jesus, what are you talking about? I've got this. This is not a big deal. Chill out. You don't understand. Other people have this, not me. But Jesus says, watch out, because it's disguised. All kinds of good. In other words, it comes in all kinds of disguises. We call it, well, I'm a good steward. I'm a pretty frugal person. I'm wise with my resources. And those are good things. That's, that's fine. But sometimes those are disguises for, for, for greed. And so what we need to do in understanding how to kill the dragon, how the dragon ought not to be taking control of our heart, is we, we need to understand finances from God's point of view, from God's perspective. I think we can see him, if I can see him through his eyes. And this is a challenge for us because constantly we've got the world telling us their perspective, constantly, all day. So to stop and say, what, God, what do you say about this? If we can see it through his eyes... I think the dragon dies. I think the, the dragon dies. Well, we want to look at three case studies this morning. By the way, let me just, just mention this. This is very important to um, Jesus because there are 38 parables in Scripture. And out of, out of those 38, 16 of them, he talks about finance. Now, this is, this is fascinating. Think about this. Jesus has to clue us all in on heaven, on hell, on Satan, on forgiveness, on being kind, on, on sanctification, on the Holy Spirit. He's got a lot of stuff to cover. But 16 out of 38 parables, he's going to talk about finance, money. I think because it's probably easy for us to be deceived on this. 
for us not to understand. In the Bible, there are 500 verses on prayer, 500 verses on faith, 2,000 on finances. And so again, I, th- I think one th- one of, this is the biggest danger with a talk like this, is right away we assume, well, that's someone else's issue. But, uh, maybe it's, it's a little bit, but, but someone else's issue. You know. I, in my heart... Maybe a chameleon, but not a dragon, you know, not a dragon. I think we got to start in saying, maybe I've been deceived. Maybe I don't understand finances from God's perspective. So that's, that's our goal this morning. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19. We'll be starting in verse 16. We're going to look at three um, case studies. We'll breeze through these. But each one has a principle that if we get, if I can get, they will help kill the dragon. 19 verse 16. It says, Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Well, which ones? The man inquired. Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbors yourself. Well, all of these I have kept, the young man said. What else should I do? What do I, what do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be complete, you want to be full, thorough, go, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Notice that just a couple things there. First of all, notice that Jesus did not ask for this guy's money, right? He, he, Jesus was going to ask him to be on the team, but he wasn't going to let him come on the team until he was a pauper. And this amazes me. You'd think Jesus would say, well, listen, you've got all kinds of resources, and we've got all kinds of vision. And I'm telling you, we've got some ministry that could be done if we had the dollars to pay for it. Maybe we should get together here. That's not where Jesus is going. My understanding is that Jesus has never asked anybody for their money. One time he was preaching, he had an illustration, he needed to borrow a coin. Inferences, he gave it back. But, but Jesus did not ask for this guy's money. He just knew that this guy's money could have his heart. He also noticed that Jesus, what he does offer to this guy, it's amazing. Because he offers this guy something that only 12 other people in the history of the world have been offered. He offered this guy, like when he came to Matthew and he said, follow me. He says to this guy, follow me. Maybe this guy could be the 13th apostle. That'd mess up our numerology stuff, wouldn't it? But, but maybe this is what he, he said, come follow me. Think about what it would mean to be one of the apostles. You've got God himself wants to disciple you. Was there anything why you'd want to say no to that? As, as an apostle, that means he would, he would witness what everyone in the Old Testament, all the prophets in the Old Testament, all the saints in the Old Testament longed to see, the redemption of the world. He would witness, he would, he would witness Christ's resurrection. If he's an apostle, then maybe Jesus would tap his shoulder to write a book of the, the New Testament because most of the books were written by apostles. So maybe he could have gotten that honor. Maybe we would read his, it wouldn't just be the rich young ruler. He would be named. We would see him in Acts 
preaching mightily and being part of the gospel spreading all over the world in a huge way. Jesus was offering this guy a huge significance. You know, in Luke 9, he gives his apostles the power to, to heal diseases and cast out demons. Look, this is the kind of stuff this guy was offered. This is a huge, huge deal. And it's almost like the guy said, comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want to spend eternity with God. How do I do that? And Jesus said, well, listen, we can start right now. But you know, when you get to heaven one day, you, your riches can't come in with you. You've got to leave them out. So let's start right now. Just leave them and come follow me. And you can spend now with God. He wasn't so sure. And then so, sometimes we look at this and we think, well, Jesus is setting this poor guy up for a teaching illustration later. But in parallel passage, Mark, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus did not want this guy's money. If he wanted it, he'd just take it. He's God. That's not a problem for him. But if he did get it all, that's not going to increase the, the net worth of heaven one iota. What Jesus knew is this guy's money was keeping him from everything Christ wanted to give him. There's Augustine who said our hearts have a, a, a vacuum that only God can fill. It's like the slipper, Cinderella's slipper, but we're trying to fill it with all the ugly stepsister uh, materialism stuff, but only Jesus is going to fill it. Uh, whenever Jesus is talking about finances, this is interesting, it, he, he very seldom tells you how to give it. Usually he tells you how to live it. Because he knows if, you got, if you're living it correctly, you're seeing it through God's eyes, the, the giving it will just come. You'll know. That won't be a problem. This is good for us. But if we don't even worry about the living it so much, seeing it through God's eyes, but we just focus on the giving, then what happens? This is in church all the time. What happens is there's depression, there's anxiety, there's Comparing with other people, I wonder what other people are giving. There is uh, questions, is it before or after tax? There's, there's all, all of this, but there's these issues we have when we're worried about the giving before the living. But if you, you figure this out first, you see it through his eyes, that, that, that's going to take care of itself. That's not a problem at all. So the, the first principle, key, key principle, is that uh, God doesn't want anything. This is an Andy Stanleyism, by the way. God doesn't want anything from you. He wants everything for you. He wants everything. Matthew chapter 6. He's going to take this to another level yet. In Matthew chapter 6. Yeah, there we go. Verse, verse 19. It says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And then, then he gives us a, a little parable, an illustration to point out what he's saying here. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad... Your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? What in the world does that mean? Well, he's just saying, if, if your eyes aren't working right, you're going to stumble. If you don't see this principle that he's talking about, if you don't see finances through his, God's eyes, Jesus' eyes, you're going to stumble through all of life. It's going to impact everything. It's going to, you wake up in the middle of the night, 
and it's dark, and you get out of bed, you don't see where you're going, and you step on the dog, you know, and you maybe some Legos, and you bang, you stub your toe against the wall, and the pitcher comes crashing down, and you lose your sanctification, you say some stuff you probably ought not to be saying, and this happens in your home, I know it does, it happens in the pastor's home, and if Teresa would just stay in bed, we would not have these issues. She's not in this service. Um, Let's go tell her. Um, But if we don't see, we stumble and we get hurt and things happen. And Jesus is saying, if you don't, this is such an important principle. If you don't see this through my eyes, you're going to stumble in all all of life. It says in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either will he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and, we would think, he would say here, God in Baal, or God in Moloch, or God in Chemish. Or but instead, he takes the number one 21st century idol, money, and, and, and Jesus juxtaposes the two. He says, you can't serve both God and money. And this is where a lot of Christians are because we hope, we want to go to heaven and God is good and on. But down here, and what if this isn't happening? We better keep like a foot here and a foot here just in case. And Jesus says, you can't do that. The, the throne of your heart, I don't doubt for many folk, um, Jesus is in there, but he's not really on the throne. He's just kind of near it. What's on the throne is usually, you know, the 401k or it's the dollar sign. It's, it's the money. So he's kind of close. This is kind of like, what was the, think about the, the rich young ruler. He listened to Jesus. He kept the law. He went to church. He wasn't a bad guy. Maybe he even tithed if he kept the law. But still, Jesus knew what was on the throne of his heart was was. His dragon's hoard. It was his. It was his money. So the, the first principle, huge principle, is that God does not want anything from us. He doesn't need any. You can't give him you, nothing from us. Everything for you, and the things that we want to hold on to so deeply, block what He has for us. That's the first principle. Uh, second case study. It's in Ecclesiastes. There aren't too many messages on Ecclesiastes, but Ecclesiastes chapter 2. It says, Solomon. Ecclesiastes 2, beginning in verse 1. And Solomon, through the whole of Ecclesiastes, tell you what, this is a great book for uh, uh, Americans to read. I had a friend, she was a, a nurse on the Gold Coast in Chicago. She was just uh, kind of living the high life, solid Christian girl, but a lot of stuff coming at her. And she said that every Sunday she would read Ecclesiastes to try to straighten out her head. Um, he says in verse two, chapter one, or chapter two, verse one, he says, I thought my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But this also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. He thought partying was going to do it. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their life. He's trying to figure out what, what is meaning, what's meaning in life. So he goes the materialism route. Verse 4, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. He doesn't have a nice house. He has nice houses. I built houses for myself and I planted vineyards. 
I made gardens and parks and, and made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. And I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired men and fe- women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the hearts of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all of this, my wisdom stayed with me. Uh, look, at, look at verse 10. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. He had, he had limitless riches and zero accountability. Doesn't it sound good? <laughs> I can get whatever I want. Nothing stops me. That's, what he was, that's where he was going. That's what he did. And then he says this. He says, my heart took delight in all my work. And this was the reward for all my labor. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. Chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. The principle that he would, uh, we can draw from this, is consumption does not equal contentment. Consumption does not equal contentment. Now, think about Solomon for a minute. Because Solomon went to church. He was a good guy. Uh, Solomon, if you, if you look back to when he first started being a king, I mean, his heart had one quest. I want to know God. I want to know who he is. I don't, and think back when you first came to know Christ. Man, it was, it, everything else was way in the shadows. Everything else was peripheral. So uh, Solomon is, God comes to him. I like the, like the genie thing and says, one wish, whatever you want, I'll do it. Well, think about this. If God came to you and said, one wish, whatever you want, I'll do it. A lot of those wishes might end up with dollar signs attached to them. But Solomon says, give me discernment, a discerning heart, to be able to judge the difference between right and wrong, to judge your people. And and this this is is the cool part, because it says that God was so pleased. God says, because you did not ask for riches, he gave them to them. Now, Solomon sat on his dragon sword for quite some time. I don't know when it happened, but somewhere along the line, his heart turned towards stuff. For you, I just ask you, just do it, no hands. Maybe did you start off on fire for the Lord? Your quest in life was, I want to know him more than anything else. That was the quest. But somewhere along the line, problems, some stuff, some questions with no answers. Maybe more responsibility, other people dependent on you, uh, marketers, jobs, raises, whatever else. You kind of slid. Where, where Jesus is still probably in the near the throne, but he's really just not on it anymore. You know, the, the, the way to tell somebody's godliness. Let me say that a way, but a primary way, is not necessarily their service, it's not necessarily their Bible reading, or do they go to church. Those are good things. But a key way, primary way to tell is check out their bank account, their checkbook. Because those things will tell that will tell you what they value. That will tell you where their where their Jesus said where your treasures there, your heart is also. That will tell you where their heart is, where they're where they're going. We think. I would, Sometimes it would be nice, you know, if I won the, the Powerball jackpot. Not that I play it, but it would be nice to be able to buy whatever you we think We think this sometimes. Um, Edwin Arlington wrote a poem a while back. 
called Richard Corey. He says, whenever Richard Corey went downtown, we people on the pavement looked at him. He was a gentleman from soul to crown, clean favored and imperially slim. And he was always quietly arrayed. And he was always human when he talked, but he still fluttered pulses when he said good morning. And he glittered when he walked. Now, what we're saying is what we think. They're very, very rich. They're human, yeah, when they talk. But there's something about them. They're just like in a different world. They're in a different... They're just... We, we, we hold them in a different category. And says, and he was rich, yes, richer than a king, and admirably schooled in every grace. And fine, we thought that he was everything to make us wish that we were in his place. And so on we worked and waited for the light and went without the meat and cursed the bread. And Richard Corey, one calm summer night, went home and put a bullet through his head. Richard Corey came to the same place Solomon does in, in Ecclesiastes 2. He realizes that consumption is not contentment. I've got it all. You, you search, you chase your whole life the dream and you finally get to the peak of Everest but you can't enjoy the view because the wind is whipping you in the face and because you can't breathe and you're wondering, now what? Now what? Well, we don't have to learn things the hard way. Scripture will let us know already consumption is, is not contentment. God has nothing, doesn't want anything from you, but everything for you. Consumption does not equal contentment. And thirdly, and this is a guy that I think got it right. First Chronicles 29. King David. First Chronicles 20. Now, what David did is uh, David was out walking one day on his palace, and he saw his house as beautiful as his massive palace, but there's this tent across the street. You know, just lowering the you know, real estate values. And he's going, geez, Louise, what is this eyesore? Then he realized, oh, the Ark of the Covenant's in that tent. That's where God hangs out. Oh. So he talks to God. And he says, I'll tell you what, God, how about I build you a nice house? Because I've got a nice house. And you're a little bit bigger than I am. So how about I build you a nice house? And God says, okay, that's not a bad idea. But you can't build it because you're a man of bloodshed. Your boy, I'll let him build it. And so David says, well, can I at least make preparations for it? God says, yeah, okay. So David gets an architect and he hires a, gets a building team together and gets a, starts a capital campaign and he gets, starts to get things rolling. First uh, Chronicles 29 says, Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task is great because this palatial structure is not for man but for the Lord God. With all my resources I have provided for the temple of my God, gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, and wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise stones of various colors, and all kinds of fine stone and marbles, all of these in large quantities. He says, besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasure. See, it's one thing to write checks out of the... the Checkbook, Nation of Israel checkbook. It's another one to write one out of your own. And so now he said, I'm going to dig into my own bank accounts too, just so you know on this thing. Give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple. 3,000 talents of gold, 7,000 talents of refined silver, 
for the overlaying of the walls and the buildings, for the gold work and for the silver work and for all the work to be done by the craftsmen. This 3,000 talents of gold, that's 190 tons of gold. That's seven plus billion dollars. David emptied his portfolio. David would die penniless. Because it wasn't, again, it wasn't, no one, God didn't ask him to give this kind of thing or do this. David wanted to do this. The giving thing wasn't an issue because he understood through God's eyes. Fascinating. Why did he do this? Verse 10. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power, and the glory, and the majesty, and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. He goes on, verse 14. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Verse 16, O Lord our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. And the principle that he gets to is an understanding that 100% of everything, not just 10%, 100% of everything is from him and for him. It doesn't mean that we put 100% in the offering plates or anything, but it's that realization that all of it, that I'm not an owner, I'm a manager, that, 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 that he gave me all of this. Sometimes he gives people more than other people. It's irrelevant. He picks out and gives to us what he would have, and he will hold us accountable one day for that. Understanding that is huge. And sometimes we say, well, listen, yeah, I would give, I would be more generous. See, if if I was like King David, I had $7 billion. Well, not really, actually. All All the studies will demonstrate that the more money you make, the less money you give. Per capita, you're not, you're not gonna, the the percentage point gets smaller the, the, the more money you make. And this makes sense. It does make sense. Because if I make a dollar, I can give a dime. That's easy. And if I make 10 bucks, I can give a dollar. Yeah, I can do that. And if I make 100 bucks, uh, I can give 10. Sure, not a problem. If I make 1,000 bucks, I can give 10, I think. Yeah. And if I make 10,000 bucks, I can give 10. If I make $100,000, I can give 10. The more you make, the harder it is to give, the less you will actually give. Reality is, uh, tell my kids this. Reality is, if you think you're going to give when you get older and life gets better and things, you get the sun comes out, and all this, you won't. You, you, where you're at right now, wherever you're at right now, the dragon is ruling in your heart. It's not an issue of how much. It's a matter. It's an issue of is the dragon ruling in my heart? And he's, he's ruling in your heart regardless of how much money you have or don't have. That, that, that's not the issue. The issue is, is the dragon ruling? Uh, let's look at a story from one of our own of how he thought through this when life got lean for him. heart 
of somebody who recognizes that maybe through the hard stuff that consumption is, is not equal to contentment, that he doesn't want anything from me, though he might lead me through the desert to test me at some point. He wants everything for me, that everything I do have belongs to him. Brad, you might be saying, you know what, I would like to get there one day, but reality is I don't know how I can do it. I'm not sure how you get there. Listen, listen. Eustace, the dragon, came face to face with Aslan, who's the Christ figure in Narnia's series. Aslan takes Eustace to a, a special pool, and Eustace says, The water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me I must undress first. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, thought I. That's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully like I was a banana. In a minute or two, I stepped out of it and I could see it lying there beside me looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been. Oh, that's all right, said I. It only means that I have another smaller suit on underneath the first one. And I'll have to get out of this one too. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully. And out I stepped and left it lying beside the other one and went down to the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe my leg. So I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin just like the other two and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled this beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done in myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. I like his language, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't much like that, for I was very tender, and underneath now I had no, no skin on, but he threw me into the water, and it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found out that all the pain had gone from my arm, and when I saw, then I saw why. I had turned again into a boy. It's uh, Lewis's picture here of coming to know Christ, the waters of, of baptism. Yeah. We try to get there. We're going to do good things, like Eustace was scratching off the skin. We're going we're gonna to, through our discipline, quit doing some bad things and maybe start doing some good things, and we think that's going to do it. And Aslan says, no, you have to let me work it. It's not fixing outward stuff. It's a change from the inside. Remember that heart that was filled? Aslan Christ needs to reform that. 
And, and maybe you have tried scratching off the old and only for it to come back on or find out that there was more, and there was more, and there was more. Christ, even right now, today, would come to you the same way he came to the, the, the rich young ruler and say, follow me. But, but I got to know, am I number one on your heart or is there something else? The, the finances. And if you come to Christ recognizing that he died for your sin, and you allow him to come in, he will forgive. He will create all things new. Scripture says he'll do that for you. He'll do that for you even right now. 